Well, let me pray for us, and then we will uh, jump into our lesson. Lord, thank you so much for this season of the year as we begin to slow down just a moment and pause in the midst of a hectic time. I pray that this would be a safe haven for us, that as we turn our hearts and our minds to think about who you are, what you have done, and take that and apply it to our lives, I pray that we will have a more joyful and peaceful season of this year. We thank you for Jesus Christ, for all he has done, and I pray that we might come to a greater appreciation of that. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Well, as you know, we text questions during class, and we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. That's just our kind of our standing tradition. Well, I'd like to talk to you about three gifts of Christmas, but I want to, it's kind of based on the idea of the three wise men although we don't know that there were three wise men, but there are three gifts named, and so that's why church tradition has it that there were three wise men. And I'm not going to talk about gold and frankincense and myrrh, so those of you that came wanting to know, what is myrrh? We probably won't answer that question. But I do want to talk about some things we would not have had there never been a Christmas. Have you ever thought about that? What if there was never, Christmas didn't happen. What if Jesus had not been born? Now I realize I'm, this is a thought experiment, not a practical thing, because the sovereignty of God is such that God's will is accomplished in history. But I thought, well, sometimes we take for granted the difference that Christmas makes, that Christ becoming flesh makes for us. And I'd like to look at a few of those. But you know what's probably the biggest and uh, probably best known what if in the entire Christmas season is this. And so I wanted to take you back, get you in the Christmas spirit, put a couple of pictures, kind of the before and after picture on your handout. So how many of you, by the way, I'm going to flip this around, have never seen this movie? Okay, there are a few of you. I predict before you get out of here, you'll be invited to someone's house to watch it this year. We have a tradition that... Uh, that Laura kind of tries to insist that we watch some of these traditional Christmas movies. This is probably one of the best. The kids all want to watch National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. It's, it's not on the same level probably in terms of message, but this idea of what if, this story as you know is based on, I mean it's just so well crafted, of what if he had never been born, you know, and he wishes, I wish I had never been born. And then he gets the opportunity to see what would have been different. And so I kind of want to do that little thought experiment and say, what, what are the things that we have uniquely because of Christmas, because Christ came to earth? Because you know that there were forces that tried to keep Christmas from happening. This passage is talking about Herod, but if you remember the story, the wise men, the magi, come from the east and they go to Jerusalem and they say, we've seen the star in the east of the king of the Jews who's born. And so Herod gets interested like, king of the Jews, that's my job. And he said, I'll tell you what, why don't you find this king of the Jews, let me know who he is because I'd like to come worship him too. And so the magi go, they find Jesus, as you know, the story unfolds, but then Joseph is warned in a dream. The Magi kind of get on to Herod, and they don't go back to Herod. But even so, Joseph is warned in a dream, get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And so he does. In the middle of the night, it says, he takes his family and he flees to Egypt. Well, when Herod finds out that the Magi didn't come back, he realizes something has happened. And it says, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. So this idea of Satan in the form of Herod in this case trying to thwart God's plans, trying to make sure Christmas never happened. In other words, the Christ becoming flesh never happened. So let's talk about a couple of things that are unique because it did indeed happen. And the first one I want to talk about is this. I don't know if you've ever thought about this in this way, but Jesus redefined the world's understanding of what love is. Jesus redefined. It's not like people didn't love each other before the birth of Christ, but you, probably, you may take this for granted because we live in a Judeo-Christian culture, or at least with a Judeo-Christian heritage, and that 
many of you are believers and have been Christians, and so maybe went to Sunday school, etc., and you learn a lot about God and God's love for us. But Jesus redefined the world's understanding of love. And I want to explore that just a little bit because I think there's some interesting lessons for us. So the first thing on your handout is this. There's, here's a statement that has been true. It's still true today for a lot of people, but it was true for all of history before the time of Christ. Love your friends and hate your enemies. Love your friends and hate your enemies was considered just the virtuous way to be, to live your life. There was nothing wrong with it. I mean, there's still people that think that today, obviously, in our city and across the world. But let me just give you an idea of how prevalent this was. Most of our heritage comes from the Greco-Roman world. And so Plato, think of Plato around uh, 400 BC, approximately, about 400 years before the time of Christ. And so Plato is kind of the golden age and the epitome of Greek philosophy. And they really began to explore things like, what is justice? What is the virtuous way to live your life? They were very interested in virtue. Now, when I say to you, what's a virtuous way to live your life? And I say, love your friends, hate your enemies. You probably think, well, wait a minute, that's not virtuous. I want you to understand that was indeed virtuous. So What Plato says in the Republic, he actually has one of his characters say this, justice is the art which gives good to friends and evil to enemies. In other words, this was considered to be very moral. It was considered to be the way you're supposed to be. You should love your friends and you should hate your enemies. Do good to your friends and do evil to your enemies. The Greeks and that whole world divided the world into three categories. They divided the world into their friends, like your family, the people of your city. In other words, people, your fellow uh, Greeks or your fellow Oklahomans or your fellow Oklahoma Cityans, whatever it may be, those were your friends. Then you had enemies. In other words, maybe a a rival uh, city-state or a rival country or people who believed something different or people who had attacked you, whatever. Those were your enemies. And then there were a lot of people that were just neither, but they were eventually going to be put into one of those two categories. So this was their category. You had friends and you had enemies. Did good to your friends, did evil to your enemies. Great example of this. Thucydides, one of the great Greek historians, wrote a history of the Peloponnesian War. The Peloponnesian War happened just before this was written, and it was the battle between Athens and Sparta. The Greeks were really doing really well. I mean, they'd beaten the Persians back. They were kind of the the pinnacle of civilization. So they were powerful militarily. Alexander the Great's going to come along, you know, in about 50 years and really conquer the world. But they're doing pretty well militarily. They think their culture is at its peak, their philosophy, their art, their science, etc. So they're kind of the premier culture in the world. But then they have a war between themselves. Athens, the great power, Sparta, the great power. And so in this war, everybody's picking sides. Thucydides writes the history of this war. You, when you read that, it is unbelievably Machiavellian. You have people making alliances and stabbing somebody in the back and lying and cheating and stealing and atrocities. I mean, you read it and you go, oh my goodness, this is worse than the modern world, and it kind of is. But everything that happened there, not everything that everybody did was considered moral, but whatever you did, lie, cheat, steal, stab them in the back, do whatever you want to your enemy, was a moral act. In other words, that was a good thing. So most of the ancient world throughout all of history felt like you love your friends, you hate your enemies. But what about the religious world? What about the Jews, for example? The Jews really felt the same way. Let me take you to the scripture. You're going to to remember this scripture. Let me read it to you. I want to focus on just one sentence, an inference we can draw from this. This is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He's preaching to his disciples. He said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Your Father in heaven causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love the people who love you, if you just love your friends, what reward will you get? The tax collectors do that, and every Jew knows they were vile. He said, even they do that. 
He said, and if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than other people? Even the pagans, even the Greeks do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What I want to focus on is that first sentence, because the inference you can draw is this. Why is Jesus even needing to teach this? Because what they had heard and what they believed in the Jewish tradition was love your neighbor, hate your enemies. Now, I know that sounds strange to you and me, because we view it all through this side of, the, of Christmas, right? The side where we've had Christmas, and Christ came to the world and redefined love. We know that the Bible says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? In Deuteronomy chapter 6, that's in the law of Moses. We know that in Leviticus it says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's in the law of Moses. And so you're thinking to yourself, so how can you get hate your enemies out of that? Well, from their point of view, before Christmas, it makes perfect sense. Who is my neighbor? Remember when Jesus was asked that question? You know how the Jews thought their neighbors were? My friends, my fellow Jews. And anybody who's not like us, they're not my neighbors. I don't have to love them. I love God. I love my friends. And it's perfectly okay to hate my neighbors. Besides which, they don't worship God anyway. They're vile. They deserve to go to hell, and if I can help them get there faster, fine. I mean, that was kind of the way they were thinking about it, right? So they had heard, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, and they thought that was very consistent with the Old Testament because they're on that side of Christmas. So I wanted you to get the, this idea that the whole world, this is the norm before the birth of Christ is that love doesn't mean exactly what you as, as Christians think it means. It meant love your friends, hate your enemies. Okay? Question? Was Plato religious, and if so, what religion did he follow? Was Plato religious, and if so, what religion did he follow? Plato was outwardly religious, meaning he worshipped the Greek gods, but, you, but he didn't believe in them but he still worshipped them. And I know that sounds weird to you because you think of worship differently than they did too. In other words, he went to the temple and he made the offerings and he went to the festivals and he did all the civic things you were supposed to do to placate the gods. He didn't believe in those gods, that they were necessarily real, but he was not a fool. He was going to do his civic duty and worship the gods. So he was a polytheist, uh, think all the Greek gods. Think Zeus and that whole pantheon of gods, those personified people, basically. So yes, he was religious in that sense. He was actually, in his philosophy, trying to define the good, the just, the true, the noble, what are the really uh, beautiful things in life, without reference to the gods. In other words, what was just isn't what Zeus said was just. So Plato, in his philosophy, was non-religious, but outwardly he was. So the people at the time of Jesus' birth who were not Jewish, would they have followed that same religion as well? Good question. A big portion of the world, uh, because uh, the Greeks and then the Romans who followed them, Romans had the same kind of belief system as the Greeks. And so when you were conquered... You, you know, you kind of figure out which side of the bread the butter's on, you know, so a lot of people converted, right? So they began to worship the Roman gods. They're polytheists anyway, we'll just add a few more gods. Really, that was very common. So yes, a lot of the world adopted the gods of the Greeks and the Romans. If they didn't, they had their own gods that were kind of like that. They had local gods. But what's more important than the gods was the underlying worldview. So whether your gods were Persian, a bunch of Persian gods, or a bunch of Greek gods, you shared the same polytheistic kind of worldview. So to make a short answer of that, yes, the world believed, love your friends, hate your enemies, and that's perfectly virtuous behavior. In fact, if you loved your enemies, that was like, you know, you probably need some counseling because that's that's not what people do. So, yes, pretty much the entire world saw that that way, regardless of their gods. Good question. Okay? All right, let's answer this question. I'd like to go in and talk about love, and we'll talk about it now on this side. How did Jesus redefine love? But I really want to start by answering this question. What love is not? 
Because what we have going on is something really similar to what Jesus had going on at the time. When, you, when the New Testament starts to be written, there are like four Greek words for love. We won't necessarily go into the details of that, but here's the point. There were other people out there using the word love, but what the Christians meant by love was very different than what the culture meant by love. That makes sense? In other words, they were using the same word agape. You probably heard that. That's kind of the highest word for love. It's used a lot in the New Testament. It's not the only word for love used in the New Testament, but used a lot. It's used of God's love for us. It's used of the love we should have for one another. But there were other people using that word. It wasn't a uniquely Christian word. But what the Christians meant by it was very different. You and I are in exactly that same situation. English has one word for love. And we just make it do multiple duty. But when you talk about love your neighbor, you mean something different by it as a Christ follower than our culture means by that. So I'd like to kind of define how did Jesus define love so that we can, I think this is going to make a difference in how we approach this season. I think it's make a difference in how you approach your marriage. I think it makes a difference in how we approach everything. So first, let's talk about what love is not. This is now on this side of Christmas. Love is not that, okay? (laughs) Love is not that romantic feeling. Now, are romantic feelings bad? Obviously not. It's how the human race keeps going. But my point is, that's not love. But in our culture, love is pretty much defined as a feeling, as an emotional response. In fact, even in the church to some extent, you get love being defined as some kind of emotional response. You will see sometimes Christians needing some kind of an emotional high. You see a lot more... Just think about the music, for example. I'm not condemning it. I'm just telling you that the culture wants to infect the church. In the culture, love has a significant emotional component to it. In the church, it's not that emotion doesn't matter... But if we buy into that, then we need an emotional high. And so one of the things, in my view, and this is an opinion, you may agree or disagree, part of the reason we have moved away from hymns and part of the reason that some of the praise songs sound like they do is because of this idea that my love as a Christian has to have some emotional component and I kind of need an emotional you know, shot of adrenaline. That makes sense. So I'm not. I'm not trying to do a cross the board saying this is good, this is bad. I'm just saying watch for that because you'll kind of see it in our culture. It's very prevalent. Laura was telling me an interesting statistic the other day. I'm not sure why she was telling me this statistic, but she was telling me this statistic that infatuation. That's infatuation. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but infatuation is that you know, giddy thing you get of everything you do is perfect and I can't get enough of you and aren't you so awesome? And, you know, that kind of feeling is actually infatuation. And Laura tells me that the statistics on that is it takes 18 months for infatuation to go away. 18 months for infatuation to go away. We've been married 29 years. I think she was telling me the honeymoon is over, okay? (laughs) I'm not infatuated with you anymore. Infatuation takes 18 months to go away. And you know, there's some, if you think about it, I don't know if that exact date is true, but there's some element of truth to that, that emotional high of people. Everybody here has been, you know, in love for a period of time, realizes you just can't maintain that emotional high, apparently not for more than 18 months. But that's true. Love is not a feeling in the New Testament. Love is not a feeling. I'm not saying loving feelings are bad. Don't misunderstand me. But that is not what love actually is. Because if so, then love's going to do this, isn't it? We know that. We know that's the way we are. So love is not a feeling. Second thing love is not, love is not indulgence. Love is not indulgence. Love is not blanket approval. And I put the parenting pick up here because I kid you not, this is... Un, you know, unfortunately, kind of true in our culture a little bit. We have defined the idea of loving your children as indulging your children. Does that make sense? We're kind of seeing that come out. Some of the, uh, no offense to those of you here who are millennials, but this is you. No, I'm just kidding. 
with that idea, in all seriousness, if you were, grew up being told you were the center of the universe, it's really hardly your fault if you think, if you come subtly to get the idea that, well, loving me is equated with giving me what I want. What you see in our culture, even in the sexual revolution, I want you to frame it this way. It's not good enough for... Uh, uh, I'm just going to dip my toe into controversial waters. Remember back when there was the discussion, which is now settled law in this, in this country, about gay marriage. There was discussion, rational discussion at that time, about gay marriage or civil unions. Do you understand this? Do you remember this discussion? Which could both accomplish certain legal ends and certain uh, social goals. But if you remember, there was huge push towards the idea of redefining marriage not simply achieving social goals with a different label. Now, I'm using this as an example. Why is that? Well, you could answer in a lot of different ways, but I'm going to suggest to you that we have redefined love to some extent as approval. And if love is redefined as approval, then you don't love me unless you approve of what I think or believe or do or call myself, etc. Think about this a little bit. I think you'll see there's an interesting thread that runs through that. And it's really affecting our culture quite a bit because we redefine love as a feeling and we think of love as blanket approval. And then finally, I couldn't resist this one. I want to actually go the opposite direction. Sometimes in our culture, Love is defined as conformance to social norms. Okay, you get extra credit if you know who all three of them are. <laughs> you guys know who all three of them are. These are kind of uh, back to the golden days, so to speak. Not everybody thought these were golden days, right? But basically, these are kind of a stereotypical vision of love from an age before ours. I remember... As a little boy watching uh, Leave it to Beaver, so uh, June on the right there, and I just, one of the things, even as a child, that really got me is that when Ward would come home in his suit, which was always buttoned, but anyway, it, Ward would come home in his suit, and June would answer the door in her pearls and her high heels. I don't know about you, but my mom didn't do that. You know, I was trying to figure out what's the. You know, what's supposed to be happening here? But we also redefine love as conformance to social norms. In other words, and I'll give you another example of this, and again, I'll dip my toe into something that's a little controversial, but to disagree with Christians is not an unusual or a bad thing in the United States. In other words, if you take someone who has different political views or different religious views in our country, that's a good thing. I mean, it's something our country's founded on is this idea of religious freedom or non-religious freedom. If you're an atheist, you're a Christian, and you'll see it with the militant atheists today, there's really nothing wrong with disagreeing about that. I mean, you can disagree and be very civil, but we don't seem to be able to, do we? And part of the reason for that is that love means approval, but also love means conformance to certain social norms. What is the biggest accusation leveled against Christians, just kind of a blanket accusation? You are haters, right? Hate speech. You're haters. I just find that interesting, but it makes sense in this. If you think about it this way, if you think about I've redefined love to mean conformance to social norms. You don't conform to my social norms. You say this is sin, and I say, how can you say that? Or you say this is wrong, or you say there's a God, and you want to behave in this way. And I'm like, wait a minute. So how, I mean, it's one thing to say I disagree with you. It's another thing to say is you're hateful, you're a hater, you're an evil person. That's because we've redefined love as conformance to social norms. Does that make sense? That was probably a little more philosophical, but I wanted to throw that in for those of you that... Uh, that remember these ladies. So love is not necessarily, I mean, love is not a feeling. Feelings are good, but love is not a feeling. Love is not indulgence, approving everything. You can love your children without giving them everything that they want. And then love is not conformance to social norms. That's not the essence of love. 
is not conforming to social norms. So now let's switch and let's talk about what love is. How did Jesus redefine love? I want to give you four aspects of love. This probably doesn't exhaust it. But the first one is this. Give our classic passage. Love is a decision, not a feeling. Love is a decision. This is the way Jesus defined love. Love is a decision that you make. I'm not saying you won't necessarily have loving feelings, be infatuated, have very positive feelings, but that's not the essence of love. The essence of love is a decision. Listen to these passages and see how much of this is about feeling and how much of this is about behavior, something you choose. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Think about that language for just a minute. That language is behavioral and cognitive. It's not emotive. If it were emotive, it would say, love feels warm in your heart. Love is a many-splendored thing. Love means never having to say you're sorry, and you're dating yourself if you laugh at that. But seriously... That's not the language here, is it? And in fact, you won't find that language in the New Testament because the way Jesus redefined what love is, actually properly defined what love is, but redefined love, it's a decision that you make. So love is a decision that we make. It's an action. The second thing is, I want to focus on that last verse 7, but the ESV is a little more accurate translation. This is a pretty translation, and it's exactly accurate. Verse 7 says this, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love is a decision, but love is also optimistic. Because if you think about making a decision, you can think about duty. All right, so then love is just a duty. I'm supposed to love you, can't really stand you, but I'm supposed to love you, and I don't have any good feelings, but I just made the decision to do it. And so love is just a duty. Love can be a duty, but it's never just a duty. Love is always optimistic. It's not a pessimistic thing. Love is optimistic. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love is a decision, but it's a decision in a kind of a forward direction, in an optimistic direction. Love uh, never fails, 1 Corinthians goes on to say, because love is a very forward-looking thing. Love accomplishes, overcome evil with good. Love triumphs over evil. How can that be? Because love is optimistic. In other words, it hopes for good. It believes in good. It endures everything. It perseveres. Love as a decision is a very persevering thing. Third thing, love is realistic. Now, this is going to sound just maybe just a little bit discordant to you. How can love be optimistic and at the same time be realistic? Keller does a great job of uh, talking about love in this way. He says, to be loved but not known, in other words, to be loved by someone but they don't really know me, is comforting but superficial. And that makes sense. You end up with hollow people and lonely people. Think about celebrities. Uh, think about TV stars, movie stars. They are loved, but they are not known. And when you start to read some of the biographies of those people, they're very, they can be very lonely people. You think, well, how can you be lonely? Well, it's this. You're loved, but you're not known. Flip side is, to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. And that is to let somebody know who I actually am, and then they reject me. They go, oh, can't love you. Right? And that is indeed one of our greatest fears as human beings. But to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. He gets this exactly right. Love is realistic in the sense that God knows us. Jesus came saying real love knows people. But you also still feel loved. That makes sense? It's realistic. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. I say it like this. Now, it's going to sound cynical to you, but love is not cynical. Love is actually optimistic. We'll talk about this for a second. Here's the way I say it. Expect people to be who they are. Expect people to be who they are. The optimism of love doesn't say, you know, old Joe has never yet come through on this, but I'm pretty sure he will this time. No, I'm pretty sure he won't, 
this time. And you know, I mean, maybe he will. And we're going to help him come through on this, but expect people to be who they are. Love is not unrealistic. Love is a feeling is an unrealistic thing, isn't it? My feelings, my infatuation covers over everything, every flaw that you might have. That's why if you get married, within the duration of the infatuation period, you could find yourself waking up one day going, wait a minute, where did all these flaws come from, right? Okay, so love is realistic. Expect people to be who they are. Second part, love them as you find them. Love them as you find them. That's the optimistic part, is realistically, I expect you to be who you are, and I'm going to love you as I find you. That's very realistic. And then my third statement is this, try not to leave them like you found them. Try not to leave them like you found them. There's an optimism of love. There's not an expectation. Unconditional love is not you know, blind. Unconditional love says, I expect you to be who you are. You know who you are? You're the same thing I am. You're a sinner who is following Jesus Christ and the Spirit is shaping us into his image and we are not there yet. Your children are little sinners. <laughs> you should expect them to be little sinners. Okay? Love them where you find them. And try not to leave them where you find them. Scripture has a lot of things. For example, one of my favorite passages in 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Corinthians 10 repeat this, but I think it's 1 Corinthians 10 that says it this way. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. And that's what I mean by try not to leave people the way you found them. In other words, try to, that love is going to be transformative. People will be changed by this kind of love. Love that is a decision, love that is optimistic that says, do you have any idea how God sees you? Do you have any idea of the man or woman that you will be if you follow Jesus Christ? That's an optimism. But this is who you are right now, and I love you where you are, and I hope that this love does not leave you where you were. So that's kind of my mantra on that realistic part of love. Then finally, so love is a decision, it's optimistic, it's realistic, and it's constructive. This is one of my favorite words in the New Testament. That word build up, literally the root word, this isn't what it means, but I mean it comes from two words, and one is to build a house. I mean it's that simple. It, love builds up. It it's constructs something. Love is always optimistic. It's forward-leaning. Love is not destructive. Love is constructive. Every time I teach, I think about this verse. I think about two verses every time I teach. One encourages me, one scares me to death. This is the one that encourages me. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And that is a really powerful idea. Paul says this, obviously, in 1 Corinthians, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. In other words, knowledge is good. God is not honored by ignorance. But love is what really builds up. So this idea of love being constructive. This, if you look in the, in the New Testament, this is how Jesus defined love. You, when you and I say the word love as believers in Christ, this is what we're talking about. When you see the word love in print or in our world, that's not necessarily how they define it. But I think it's really good for us to have clarity that Jesus says love is a decision. He decided to empty himself. Think Philippians 2. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to hold on to. In other words, he is God. But he said, you know what? I choose to take the form of a servant and be humbled, Philippians 2 says, even to death on a cross. That's a choice he made. While we were still sinners, Romans 5, quoted it this weekend, Christ died for us. It doesn't say, while we were little sinners, but darn, we were cute. You know, and he just said, you're just so cute, I have to die for you. No. Who, who really dies for somebody who's in rebellion against them? Sinner. It's a choice that he made. And so he demonstrates this idea that love is a decision, that love is optimistic, love conquers all, that love is realistic. In other words, see people for who they are, but love is essentially constructive. The reason this is important, so I can kind of move towards an application just a little bit, is this is the kind of love that the Bible talks about when it talks about Christian marriage. 
Let me just give you a couple of examples. When the Bible talks about marriage, it's talking about this kind of love. Sometimes we bring to marriage that worldly idea of love, that idea that it's a feeling, that idea that it's complete and total approval, and that idea that it needs to conform to some kind of particular social norm. We bring that idea to it. That's not what the New Testament's talking about. So, for example, give you, again, I'll dip my toe into something a little controversial, but I want you to understand why the New Testament says what it says. Why does Jesus teach that marriage is intended to be for life? Why does Jesus teach that divorce is not good? That's not acceptable to him. Now, do we sin? Can we be forgiven? I, I'm, that's not my point. Of course we can. But my point is, why does Jesus even teach that? Why didn't Jesus just say, okay, look, I know you guys really well. We're just going to do five-year deals, all right? Five-year contracts. Okay, wait, make it three. Three-year contracts. I know you're fickle hearts. Yeah, we are. We're fallen human beings, and there is that tendency. But he doesn't. Why does he not do that? Because the essence of a Christian marriage is intended to teach us this kind of love. If love is a feeling, it's really hard to feel that way for 50 years. But if love is a decision, that's something you can do for 50 years, right? If love is optimistic, if love is realistic, if love is constructive, looking best to others, that's something that can actually glorify God and really make us content. That's why Jesus talks about marriage the way he does is because he believes this is the essence of love. Christian marriages are built on this idea of love. Building your marriage on a, on a, a Christian marriage, on a non-Christian idea of love, is going to cause conflict. The expectations cannot be met. Yes, question. The love that you're talking about is this agape love? Yes, uh, talking about the Greek word agape love. Uh, the other really common word is fillet. Think, um, we use that all the time. Uh, Philadelphia, brotherly love, uh, anything that's philosophy, love of wisdom, anything that's got that P-H-I-D-I-L on it comes from a Greek word that also means love. But it typically, typically is talking about friendship, but deep friendship. And agape is usually talking about a little more of an unconditional giving kind of love. But you've got to be careful not to draw really sharp lines there. But every time the New Testament talks about love, whatever word it uses, this is what Jesus means. This is how Jesus redefined what love is. When you see that word in the New Testament, it means this kind of love. So yes, agape is the most commonly used word, but it was used by other people too. In other words, Jesus took a word and redefined it. So like in our culture, people will say, use the word love. When we use the word love, we need to mean this kind of love, and we need to articulate it's this kind of love. Otherwise, we'll talk past each other. For example, if I talk to my friends who are not believers, and we talk, for example, about marriage. I remember having a conversation with a guy about marriage, and he said, you know, the biblical teaching about marriage is unrealistic. And I said, why? Why do you think that? And he said, because love, by its nature, cannot last for a lifetime. And I thought, that is true. If you understand love the way he understood love, he understood love as a feeling, right? As a, having these warm feelings. He understood love as having my needs met, kind of indulgence. In other words, you will indulge my needs. In other words, if it gets to the point where you change too much, I change too much, and you no longer meet my needs, well, I'm no longer in love with you. If you understand love in that way, I understand that. I agree. That kind of love cannot last a lifetime. And if you think that's what marriage is about, then you're right. But that's not what we think. And so I said, you know what? I would agree with you if you and I had the same definition of love. And so, but I don't. Here's what the Bible, you read the Bible and say it's unrealistic, but you use your definition of love. I said, I'm not trying to argue with you, but you ought to at least let the Bible use its own definition of love. And that was a good conversation because it kind of opened his eyes to, oh, you do not think about this the way I do. The Bible doesn't think about this the way I do. I think our world is really ripe to get this version of love. I read a, a, a Pew uh, anyway, research on, um, this was world kind of a thing, but in America, that young people, I'm talking now about teenagers, in our very sexualized 
culture are having a hard time with romance. Sex is not a problem because it's everywhere. I mean, it's on television, there's pornography everywhere, but actually having a romantic relationship, absolutely no idea how to do that. Does that make sense? That actually makes a lot of sense. That is because we have redefined love, so to speak. It's become conflated with the idea, well, sex. In our culture, love is sex. Well, if that's the case, then you really don't have any idea how to have a relationship with someone. And so now you see uh, schools starting to have some classes to teach how to have romantic relationships. And you know the first thing they need to do? Redefine love, right? As long as you define love in that way, you're never going to be able to have that kind of relationship. As long as you define love the way our culture does, you're never going to be able to have a satisfying marriage. So the idea of redefining love was one of the key things Jesus did. I, mean, I hope you think about that and appreciate that. What you think of as love is very different than what the world thinks. And sometimes we need that reminder. We need that refresher. The second thing, in addition to marriages, is love your neighbor. Now think about what love your neighbor means. Love your neighbor in the world's, I don't care how liberal you are, I don't care how nice a person you are, I don't care how green you are, you've kind of got a neighbor definition going here. And your neighbor definition is always going to be split into an us and them. The only difference is who's the us and who's the them. So, for example, on a political scale, you see us and them being this political party and this political party. Right? And it gets very heated, doesn't it? Well, that's because I've defined my us and them. My neighbors are this group of people that agree with me, and my enemies are the people that don't. Uh, ethnic, ethnicity, color, socioeconomic status. We're always dividing people into our neighbor and not our neighbor. That's perfectly legitimate in the non-Christ world. It's love your friends, hate your enemies. But as Jesus redefines the idea of love your neighbor to be a decision, to be optimistic, to be constructive, to be realistic, now everybody can be your neighbor. Because you could say to me, Terry, how can I feel good about somebody whose beliefs I absolutely abhor? You can't feel good about that. But can you make a decision to do good for them? Yes, you can. You see what I'm saying? That's how Jesus can say everybody's your neighbor. Fry the Jews' minds. And it makes sense, because if you thought of love as my obligation to fellow Jews, and Jesus says you need to love everybody, they're like, you're nuts. That doesn't fit. That definition of love is not big enough to encompass Jesus' definition of neighbor. So here's my question and challenge to you. Who is your them? If there is any them when it comes to love, that means we're not operating with Jesus' definition of love. Again, I'm not saying you approve of people. That's the world's definition of love, not Jesus' definition. Jesus loved people he completely disapproved of because he doesn't define love as approval. He doesn't define it as a feeling. That's how you and I can love Muslim extremists in the world. We can love your enemy. You can't love your enemy feeling good about them. You certainly can't approve what they are doing, and you certainly can't buy in to the way they go about it. But if you take Jesus' definition of love, and that is, I'm going to make a decision to do constructive things for you. I'm going to be realistic. I'm not going to prove everything you do, but I'm going to work for your good. What builds you up? What takes you from where you are to closer to where God wants you to be? That love you can do for anybody. That's why we as Christians, in the this immigration discussion, in the refugee discussion, we need to be very careful to differentiate our policy, which is a matter of reason, and the best way to be constructive and help people to differentiate that from the fact of we love these people. We have decided to love them. We will do constructively good things for them. Does that make sense? That idea of love is something the world really needs to hear. And that's the way Jesus defined it. Whether it's in our marriages, they need to see it. Whether it's in our dealing with people, that's also what they need to hear and what they need to see in the world. So, how does Jesus, this is the so what part. So what are we going to do with this? The interesting thing about Jesus is, he doesn't just come and give a philosophical discourse like Plato did on what is the nature of love. 
Jesus actually demonstrates it. There are just a few passages out of John. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by the way, this is the passage that goes on to say, the world will know you're my disciples by your love. If you interpret that with the world's definition of love, in other words, the world will know you're my disciples because you have a warm, fuzzy feeling, you're always holding hands, singing kumbaya around the campfire. Yeah, that isn't happening, is it? It is not happening, and it's not realistic. So get that out of your head. The world is going to think about Acts 2 and Acts 4. You've got these Christian communities who come together and are taking care of each other's needs. Do you suppose those people liked each other? Some of those people hated each other in this, in this sense. Some of them were Jews who became Christians. Some of them were Gentiles who became Christians. And the day before, they wouldn't even shake hands with each other. But now, they made a decision to care for each other. That's Christ's definition of love. You can do that with everybody in this room. Does that make sense? That's the power of love, and Jesus defines it that way. So if you think you have to show the world your disciples by your love, which means I walk around with a warm feeling and a beautific look on my face, that's the world's description of love. I walk around looking for needs and go to make a decision to meet them. That's Christ's definition of love. That's transformative. Uh, he says, as my fathers loved me, I've loved you. Now remain in my love. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Jesus makes a point of giving us the example. He doesn't just say, I'm telling you to love. He said, you do what I do. Does that make sense? Good, because one of the advantages of being in this environment is we're around tables, and I know we've never done this. It's going to freak you out. But we're going to take five minutes, and here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at the other people at your table and go, ooh, no. Seriously, look at the other people at your table. If you don't know each other, really quickly, just say your name. But here's my question for you. If Jesus has redefined love in this way, and that's how we want to think about love in our marriages, in, our, in every aspect of our lives, in our love your neighbor, is this kind of love as a decision. Love is optimistic, love is realistic, and love is always constructive. If that's what we mean by love, and Jesus says, I showed you what it looked like, here's my question. Just around your table for just a couple of minutes, share with each other what are some specific ways you saw Jesus, as you read uh, the stories of his life, exhibit this kind of love. What are some specific ways you saw Jesus exhibit this kind of love? Okay? Take a few minutes, discuss that. Well, let's see what you uh, came up with. Actually, we won't see what you came up with because it'd be kind of chaotic to be yelling it out. But we really need to drive this idea into practice. And so I just think Jesus was so brilliant in this sense. He redefined what love was completely. And it is gonna, it's really impossible to understand the teachings of Jesus, especially the Sermon on the Mount, but the teachings of the New Testament without understanding love the way Jesus defines love. It's a higher thing, but it's a very different thing. But you and I are walking this out. If we are going to follow Christ, we're going to have to love like he loved. And so he showed us how to do that. That's the beauty of this. He demonstrates his love by showing us. That's why you have your New Testament. I mean, that's one of the big reasons that you have the Gospels, because I, hopefully you realize around the table, and by the way, if you realize, man, I don't really know my Bible very well, that's okay. None of us were born knowing that. But I hope it inspires you to say, I need to go read the Gospels. I kind of want to know a little more about Jesus. How did he treat people? How did he do this kind of love? Now that you know that and you watch how he treated people, you go, I see how he can treat the Samaritans that way. I see how he could do this. Go learn more about him. But I hope that your tables, you came up with some specific ideas that Jesus did it, and here's the simple charge. Then go do that kind of thing today. The specific ways he acted out that love, making that decision, being optimistic, but being realistic about people, and always building up, always being constructive to meet needs, to care for people, to bring them one step closer is that kind of an idea is 
we just need to go put that into practice. So I hope that as you see that at your tables, I hope everybody came up at their tables with something concrete, like, you know, Jesus did this to these kind of people. Figure out who those kind of people are in your life. Who's the them in my life? Well, go reach out to them and love them like this. Does that make sense? It will make a huge difference in the Christmas season for you. Because, I don't know about you, but every time I'm walking through Christmas, I feel like, maybe I'm just uh, Scrooge on this, but I feel like I'm supposed to be smiling, I'm supposed to be jovial in spirit as I crush through the crowded mall (laughs) at the last minute because I forgot to get Laura's present earlier than this. And, you know, have you ever felt that angst? Uh, I'm supposed to be cheerful, but I'm not cheerful. I hate this small parking lot. Wait, it's Christmas. Hey, thank you for taking my spot. You know, that doesn't work very well, does it? But the more you think about this kind of idea of love, you go, I can do that. I can decide to be that kind of man. I can decide to be that kind of woman. I can decide to do that. I can honor God in my decisions and not have to worry about that my feelings don't always keep up with my decisions. That's true in your marriage, it's true at Christmas, true everywhere. So I hope you got a little bit out of that in your uh, tables. However, I do need to make an announcement. We actually had a few more people than we thought in here, and not everybody got to be around a table. So next week, we'll go back to the venue because I really want you to be comfortable. But next week, see, these build. Okay, You needed to understand love because next week, what I want to talk to you about is another thing that Jesus completely redid. Jesus completely redid the idea of what it means to be happy. You see, everybody in the world thinks that the point of life is to be happy. I mean, not everybody thinks this, but everybody up to Jesus thought the point of life was to be happy. If you asked Aristotle, if you asked the Persian philosophers, if you asked the Chinese philosophers, the purpose of life is to be happy. Christians don't necessarily disagree with that, but they very much disagree with the idea of what does it actually mean to be happy And how is that achievable? And that's what I want to talk about is how does Jesus mark out a path for us to be happy? And I'd like to make a couple of interesting tie-ins to our founding documents. I don't want to get too political, but our founding documents refer to the idea of the pursuit of happiness. What did our founders mean by that? I think you'll get an interesting perspective when we look at what Jesus meant by that, and you'll realize that's why America works the way it works. So, next week, the pursuit of happiness. You will be happy after next week, okay? (laughs) See you guys then.